So last week, um, I said something like, uh, when we reach into our wallets and give money to the gospel, it is as if we are preaching the gospel. It is a full participation in the work of evangelism. And Paul uh, strikes this in that expression in his thanksgiving. Um, I'm thankful to God for your partnership in the gospel. That doesn't mean your fellow believing in the gospel. It means your contribution to the gospel. Your koinonia eistor evangelion, an expression that comes back at the end of uh, Philippians. This for Paul is the basic concept, it seems to me, of his understanding of a church, uh, of every Christian's involvement in the work of evangelism. Um, God willing, I have years to impose this heresy on you. I don't think Paul ever imagined every Christian was an evangelist. Uh, it seems clear to me that he thought of every Christian as a partner in the gospel, playing, uh, playing different roles. Uh, and that is, that is the basic concept. I think his idea of partnership in the gospel applies to prayer, it applies to the godly life, and so on. More about that, uh, God willing, in the years to come. But, but that's the topic of the Thanksgiving that we uh, saw last week, the, the formal thanksgiving from verses uh, 3 through uh, to 8. It's the thing God, uh, Paul thanks God most for about the Philippians, their eager support materially of his uh, gospel work. And the Philippians' eager concern for the work of the gospel spills over into the mission update he gives from verse 12 Onwards. And don't worry, I will come back to verse 9, but let's just follow this train of thought. Not only is the first thing Paul says about the Philippians back in verse 3 that they're really into the support of the gospel, uh, in verse 12 he gives um, an update that goes right through to verse 18, or it's hard to work out the exact markers in the text, but at least to verse 18, he gives this update about his gospel circumstances, about how the evangelistic mission is going. And um, it, it seems to me this is unique in Paul's letters. In Paul's 13 letters, um, yes, I think Paul wrote all 13 of them, um, we don't get updates about the mission at the front of the letter. Sometimes we get updates about how his mission is going at the back of the letter and just a couple of lines, but this is at the front of the letter. Before there are any commands or anything. We don't get a command until verse 27 in this letter. Um, so we get this quite lengthy mission update about how his circumstances are going and how the gospel's rocking on uh, right at the front of the letter. Uh, why? I think it's as simple as Paul knows the Philippians are eager to hear how the gospel's going. He knows they're like really into the gospel and they've supported him from the first day until now. And so he says in verse 12, now I want you to know, brothers and sisters, that what has happened to me has actually served to advance the gospel. Uh, you see the word translated by the NIV, actually. Uh, this is the adverb malon, which is a pretty sort of flexible adverb. Uh, can be an intensifier. Like the ESV, those of you who have ESV, it says really, it's really adver uh, work to advance the gospel. Uh, it can be an adversative, um, yeah, meaning rather. And the New American Standard Bible, in its lovely literalness, says that this has rather, as in contrary to expectations, served to advance the gospel. And you can see the NIV is taking an each way bet by saying actually. Good on the NIV. It's, it's very Anglican, isn't it? <laughs> 
Um, but given the context, I think Malon here is an adversative in force. Uh, that is contrary to expectation. Uh, here I am in prison, and y- you guys thought that that would hinder the gospel. I just want you to know, Malon, rather, it has uh, served to advance the gospel. And I think this explains why we have a mission update in the front of a Pauline letter. Because the Philippians are really into evangelistic mission. They're really concerned. They've heard that Paul is in prison and they want to support him. They're worried that the gospel has been hindered. They send Epaphroditus to him. Epaphroditus has no doubt shared with Paul the, the sort of concern of Philippians that the chief evangelist in prison will mean that the gospel isn't going forward and Paul right up front of the letter says nope gospel's doing fine thanks even if the evangelist in chief is locked up in jail the word of God is not chained that's what he's saying here rather it has served to advance the gospel my negative circumstances have actually served contrary to expectation to promote the gospel he's not just being stoic Oh, don't worry about me. No one worries about me. Paul is the opposite of that. And he explains what he means by how it's actually served to advance the gospel. Because in verse 13, he says, As a result, it's become clear throughout the whole palace garden to everyone else that I'm in chains for Christ. So in other words, Paul hasn't shut up about the gospel. Everyone's hearing that he's in there for Christ. Oh, what are you in here for? Oh, I'm here, you know, I did this. What are you in here for? Oh, preaching Christ. Uh, Can I tell you about Christ? So he's preaching Christ. (laughs) Um, and the whole palace guard have, have heard, and not just the guards, he says, and everyone else. When the mind boggles, who that is? Fellow prisoners. You know, the maids, the cooks, the, you know, the visitors to other prisoners. Oh, hi, I'm Paul. I'm here for Christ. Who? Let me tell you. Paul isn't the only one who hasn't shut up. In verse 14, he says... And because of my chains, most of the brothers and sisters have become confident in the Lord and dare all the more to proclaim the gospel without fear. Now, Hoya Delphoi here may mean brothers and sisters, as in Christians generally, uh, but I've made the case somewhere uh, that Hoya Delphoi um, usually in Paul refers to his missionary colleagues, doesn't refer I mean, if you, if you do the counting, uh, 22 times it refers to Christians generally, brothers and sisters, and 24 times it refers to colleagues. And uh, the, hoi uh, adelphoi, one of the dictionary definitions is colleague or partner. And I think Paul is referring to missionary colleagues in the city of his imprisonment, which we know is not Rome. Is Mike here today? Okay, it's Rome. <laughs> Either way, whoever the Hoya Delphoi are, um, Paul's point is really worth absorbing. Political, cultural, and physical opposition to the gospel does not necessarily hinder the gospel. Sometimes the opposite is the case. Sometimes the most negative circumstances, the most unfortunate winds, actually, rather, support the gospel. And there's an important lesson, I think, here for us in our de-Christianizing Australian setting. Not to freak out, but to be Pauline. And just know that the gospel can't be chained. 
I had the most amazing experience a few years ago. I got to speak to about 200 house church pastors from China, in China. If you could just lower the volume level for a second. This is them singing. I had to get out my iPhone and go, oh, this is awesome. Uh, I can't remember what they're saying. Uh, uh, It was something about how the Lord reigns over all things or something like that, and we'll praise the Lord always. Uh, But uh, these 200 pastors were from the most amazing demographic. You can hear my translator whispering in my ear what they were were trying to say. Uh, So we had people in Pierre Cadan suits, (laughs) and we had peasants who hardly had shoes. About a quarter of them were women, which messed with my Sydney Anglican head. Uh, not really, I'm just being <laughs> frankly, frankly silly. It, it was one of the greatest privileges of my ministry. I was there to teach them historical Jesus. When I got halfway through my lectures and I thought, this is ridiculous, what am I doing here, teaching them historical Jesus? I'm sure the Lord uh, sent me there to bless me, because night after night they told testimonies. And this one woman started to get up and share her testimony and weeping. And I'm listening to her weeping. And um, I'm going, oh, what's she saying? My translator's in my ear saying, oh, her husband, uh, they were a husband and wife pastor team, has just been sent to a labour camp. He's got five years for preaching. And I was like, oh no. And then as it went on, the translator said, she's weeping for joy because she has just heard before coming to this conference, her husband has led the two top officials of the labour camp to Jesus Christ. And she is overjoyed. She was shouting with joy at, at the glorious opportunity to bring the gospel into a place. I tell you that, you know, I, come, I came back from China um, not inspired, actually, depressed. Uh, for, I don't know, two or three weeks, four weeks maybe, quite depressed. And I was trying to self-analyse what I was experiencing. And I think in the end, it was that I, I just felt so unlike that. I, it just so challenged me to think, could I have the most negative circumstances in, in my life and still praise God that the gospel goes forward regardless of what happens to me? I don't know. That, it, it was really challenging. And when I look at Paul, I, I just said, that is so Paul. He goes, yippee. People that wouldn't have heard of the gospel are hearing the gospel. There's something about knowing you have no power that sort of releases you from the kind of expectations that, that people will listen to you. And, and, and you suddenly trust that the gospel is the power. That's what Paul exemplifies here. A kind of cheerful confidence to jump into every situation. And a cheerful humility to lose well, if you have to. That's what he's doing here. And it, you know, For Paul, he, he thinks losses are wins in disguise. You just got to wait and you watch the gospel win. And it's out of this same gospel confidence that he makes that incredible statement of verse 15 about him not really caring that people hate him. 
It is true that some, I think some of the Hoyadelphoi, uh, preach Christ out of envy and rivalry here in the city of my imprisonment, but others out of goodwill. The latter do so out of love, knowing that I'm here for the defence of the gospel. The former preach Christ out of selfish ambition, not sincerely, supposing that they can stir up trouble for me while I'm in chains. But what does it matter? The important thing is that in every way, whether from false motives or true, Christ is preached, and because of this, I rejoice. You know, large sections of early Christianity thought Paul was a kind of leftist liberal. It's ironic that that's hardly a criticism of him today. But, you know, they thought that he was like undoing the Jewish traditions. He was like the opposite of a conservative in his day. And we know from the letter to the Romans uh, that this was alive and well in Rome. So in chapter 3, verse 8, he speaks of those who are slandering him for saying that we should sin more to make grace all the, all the more glorious, right? So we know this is a slander in Rome. Of course, Paul wasn't writing this from Rome. Uh, in other words, pre- preachers were distancing themselves from Paul and stirring up trouble for his chains. They're preaching Christ. They're not heretics. They just hate Paul. And Paul goes, well, I don't care. What do I care? The gospel's too important, our mission too vast, the forces against us too great to worry about factionalism and who likes me. I rejoice because the gospel is going forward. Man, oh man, I love that heart of the Apostle Paul, which he's trying to instill, obviously, in the Philippians and through God's word to us. Okay, so here's the thing. We know what Paul thanked God for about the Philippians. They're passion for the gospel, their contribution to the gospel. And that's why I think we get an update right at the front of the letter. But what does he ask God for in the Philippians? And that's why I want to circle back to verse 9 that I skipped over in an exegetical faux pas. When someone says to you, oh, here's the one thing I'm praying for you, and you revere that person, you listen, right? You know, someone you really respect says, you know, I've been praying for you, and here's what I'm praying. You go, yeah, yeah, what, what, what? And, and, then, and that's what Paul does in verse 9. And this is my prayer. I've told you what I thank God for. Here's my prayer. That your love may abound more and more in knowledge and depth of insight so that you may be able to discern what is best and may be pure and blameless for the day of Christ, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes from, through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of, of God. Reese, how long do I have? Because I forgot to keep any time. You're doing well. Well, how do you know what, how much I've got left? You have time to go. Okay. So, here's the thing. What is the one thing Paul prays for in the Philippians? It isn't that they'd be more evangelistic. Because he reckons they've got that one sorted. He's confident that God is continuing that one. His prayer in verse 9 is that their love may abound more and more in knowledge and depth of insight. It's even more intense in the original as Anthea is no, no doubt seeing right before her, there's a missing adverb in the English in verse 9. It's eti malon, kai malon. Eti, even more and more. I don't know why they don't translate it. Maybe there's a reason Anthea can tell me later. It, it literally says, uh, this is my prayer, that your love will abound even more and more. In other words, it's not that he doesn't think the Philippians have love, they've got the whole love thing, but they need to improve even more and more. Uh, We have little hints in Philippians, don't we, that they could do with a little more love. You know, in chapter 4, verses, uh, what is it? 
2 and 3, we learn that two of the leaders aren't getting on swimmingly. Euodia and Syntyche are having a little bit of tension. But actually, even more than that, the central section of the letter uh, is chapter 2, isn't it? Can I turn back to chapter 2? And it's really sort of the first theme he kicks out. If you have any encouragement from being united with Christ, if any comfort from his love, if any sharing in the Spirit, that's all a reference to the Trinity, by the way, if any tenderness and compassion, then make my joy complete by, here it is, by being like-minded, having the same love, being one in spirit and of mind, do nothing out of selfish ambition, and you know how the rest of it goes. And it seems that the prayer of 1 verse 9, this is my prayer that your love will abound even more and more, is flagging what will be a major theme of the letter. That your love would grow. Not so much love for God, This is love of neighbour he's talking about. The major theme of the central section of Philippians. Not that we can separate divine love from neighbourly love too much because I think that's the meaning of um, verse 9b where he says that your love may abound more and more in knowledge and depth of insight. Do you see that? It's a weird thing. The mode in which Christian love abounds is deeper knowledge and insight. Christian love is not the warm fuzzy you feel towards someone Uh, the mode of Christian love is depth of knowledge and insight into what? obviously God's character I mean you know don't you those of you who have studied Pauline letters that Paul normally does theology and then then out of the theology asks people to live in the light of the theology right and you can see it in Paul's uh, in the central section of Philippians where Paul calls them to love what does he do? he begins chapter 2 with a reference to the Trinity and then calls them to have similar love and then, uh, in verses, um, verse 5, he says, In your relationships with one another, have the same mind that is in Christ Jesus. And you get that Christ hymn of Christ sacrificing himself for others. And his point is, you've got to be like that. So, I think this is, Paul is doing in the letter exactly what he's praying for, that your love will abound in knowledge and insight into the character of God. And, of course, it's recursive. Because, if you look at verse 10, the more we abound in this theologically shaped love, the more, quote, we will be able to discern what is best and may be pure and blameless for the day of Christ. Interesting thought here. The loving person is better able to know God's will than the unloving person. Knowing God's will, knowing God's best, isn't cognitive only. It's moral. In the sense that the person who has attuned themselves to love will be able to discern the best of God in the world. The heart directs our discernment. I think that's a really interesting thought. Anyway, I'll try and land this plane. I am struck as I read this opening section of Philippians by the way Paul juxtaposes gospel zeal and neighbourly love. Gospel zeal and neighbourly love. The Philippians are really into gospel zeal, support. But Paul wants them to move forward in love. And this, this honestly has been a, a lifelong or Christian lifelong struggle for me because I am singularly obsessed with trying to make Christ more public. And that sort of evangelistic zeal has very often blinded me to human love. I'm into promoting the gospel in whatever way I can, but I sometimes forget the very thing Paul prays for, that my love may abound more and more. And I'll never forget a letter my brother sent to me 
when I was first uh, full-time in ministry, this is my brother, he's a, a minister now, uh, he used to be a professional car driver, <laughs> and, and uh, I was full-time in ministry, off saving the world, um, and I got home from a long uh, evangelistic tour uh, to a letter in the mail that said to the fabulously famous John Dixon. I knew I was in trouble. <laughs> I knew my brother's writing as well. And I opened it up and my little brother gave me this scorching lesson about how I was off saving the world being the big evangelist and there were people in Sydney that I'd forgotten about. I was not looking after mum when I was home. He spoke of friends that I hardly contacted when I was in Sydney because I was too exhausted and I was too, too getting ready for the next evangelistic thing. And he just went on this litany of things. And then the little jerk started quoting scripture at me. <laughs> he, he was a brand new Christian. How dare he? And he started citing uh, John 13, Jesus washing the disciples' feet. And quotes from 1 John about, you know, if you say you love God and don't love others, you're a phony. And then he said, he closed the letter by saying, you know, just the other day, mum, our mum's not a believer. He said, mum the other day said to me, Jamie, you're a much better advertisement for Christianity than your super Christian brother. I was undone. I was undone. Now, I wish I could say, and from that day. <laughs> no, it's a constant struggle, but I, I thank God for that rebuke. Because it was kind of the first time in my ministry I realised I have a perpetual danger of being too interested in the business of gospel work and forgetting human beings, of trying to save the masses with all my energy and time and forget the people right in front of me who, who, who I'm called to love. And so that's the thing I, I see when I read Philippians. Paul's great thankfulness to God for the Philippians is their gospel zeal. It's great. But his single prayer for them is that their love would abound even more and more. May those twin callings be our reality. Gospel zeal, neighbourly love. So Lord, will you take this, your holy word, and imprint it uh, in our minds and our hearts. Help us to be the people you want us to be. Always zealous for the advancement of the gospel, trusting that in your power, despite circumstances, the gospel does go forward and we can rejoice in that. But Lord, help us, especially as we study your word, to um, learn to love even more and more because of our knowledge and insight into your character. Lord, teach us in the power of your Spirit for the honour of Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen.
So from our seats, in response to John's sermon, we're going to shout out our prayers for character and perseverance. Listen again to these words from Philippians 1. This is our prayer at Ridley, that our love may abound more and more in knowledge and depth of insight, so that we might be able to discern what is best, may be pure and blameless for the day of Christ, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. Let's spend a few minutes shouting out our need for God to help us grow in character and perseverance. Move forward in our own strength, but rather empty us so we might know your power. 